your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Well, last night uh, in Montreal, we celebrated the 170th birthday of the world's greatest detective, that, of course, is Sherlock Holmes. Uh, the creation of uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Conan Doyle, of course, was a medical doctor and very scientifically inclined. That's why it's so surprising that uh, in spite of having created a detective who was a great critical thinker and uh, proceeded via the scientific method, Conan Doyle himself believed in spirits and fairies and all kinds of nonsensical pseudoscience. Anyway, uh, in the celebration of uh, the master's birthday, I thought I would tell you a little bit of a story. But before I get into that, uh, as is our tradition here, of course, I will ask a couple of questions so that you can ponder them and then give me a call at 514-790-800 or text to 514-800 with your answers. And of course, those are also the contacts should you have any sort of question in the scientific realm. All right, so here we go. The seeds in the pods that grow on the golden chain tree, that's what it's called, the golden chain tree, are toxic, and in sufficient doses can even cause death. Why would someone purposely swallow a capsule that contains the toxin extracted from the seeds. Obviously, not in a high enough dose to kill them. So we're looking for this ingredient in the golden chain tree, which could be toxic, but nevertheless, people swallow capsules of it, which are commercially available. Question is, why? And the second question, why does the kereru fall out of trees? Why does the Kereru, K-E-R-E-R-U, fall out of trees? So once again, if you know the answer to one of those questions, 514-790-0800, text 514-800. All right, now back to my story. In 1889, a startling article appeared in the British medical journal, The Lancet, with the enticing title, Note on the effects produced on man by subcutaneous injections of a liquid obtained from the testicles of animals. What made this paper truly remarkable was that the man was none other than the author, respected physiologist Charles Brown Sicard. To the astonishment of readers, the 72-year-old Sicard reported dramatic rejuvenating effects after self-administering testicular extracts of dogs and guinea pigs. Why these particular creatures were selected as donors was not explained, but the difficulty of procuring human volunteers probably had something to do with the decision. In any case, Brown Sicard was obviously impressed with his handiwork. Quote, A radical change took place in me. I had regained at least all the strength I possessed a good many years ago, with regard to the facility of intellectual labor, which had diminished within the last few years, a return to my previous ordinary condition became quite manifest. Furthermore, he went on to report, a great improvement with regard to the expulsion of fecal matter. Well, talking about the expulsion of fecal matter, perhaps Brown Sicard's claims require a little scientific uh, scrutiny. 
Could there have been enough testosterone in the extracts to produce the changes he noted? Actually, while testosterone is produced in the testes, it is quickly passed into the circulatory system with very little being stored in the testes. Still, the only meaningful way to test the validity of brown sequard's report is to repeat the experiment. And that is just what Australian researchers decided to do. Well, not exactly. They weren't foolhardy enough to inject themselves with testicular extracts, but they did prepare them exactly as brown sequard described. And then using standard laboratory techniques, they determined the amount of testosterone present. The results clearly indicated that brown sequard could not possibly have benefited from any physiological effect. The amount of testosterone found was four orders of magnitudes less than what is required to raise testosterone levels to normal in men who have lost their testes. Clearly, even though brown sequard was an experienced researcher, he had not controlled for the placebo effect. Now, why am I telling you this story? Because uh, one of the 56 Sherlock Holmes stories written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is called The Adventures of the Creeping Man. And it dealt exactly with the research that I just described to you, which was real research. And Conan Doyle was aware of this, but he did not think that this research carried out by Brown Sicard was in the right direction. He didn't think that this kind of thing should be done. He thought it pushed the envelope of science too far. And he decided to poke fun at this by writing the story of the creeping man. The creeping man was actually a professor of physiology in the story who had married a young lady many, many years, his, his um, uh, junior. He was in his uh, 70s and she was in her 20s, but she had agreed to marry him because he was a highly respected man in good standing in England. But he was concerned that uh, he would not be able to uh, meet his marital requirements. And he sought help from an interesting source. Now, Sherlock Holmes was called into the case uh, by the, uh, uh, by the uh, uh, son of the professor. Why? Because he had been showing some very, very strange behavior. It seemed that he liked to climb trees in the garden and swing from one limb to the other in the middle of the night turned out that he had kind of made a monkey of himself. And what was the crux of this story? He had sent away for a hormone with which he had injected himself. And this was a hormone that had been extracted from the glands of monkeys. This was right in, in um, line with Brown Sickard's research, because in fact, one of Brown Sickard's disciples, uh, Dr. Serge Voronov, who had been born in Russia but emigrated to, to, to France, uh, continued Brown Sicard's research on, on testes. In fact, he even uh, uh, surgically implanted testicles into the scrota of men. Where did he get these testicles? From executed criminals in France. He had made a deal with the government, but when they ran out of executed criminals, he tried something else. 
he went for the next best thing, which was uh, the testicles of primates, of monkeys. And um, so this is what uh, you know, uh, Conan Doyle was poking fun at, uh, the idea of using monkey glands or extracts of monkey glands for rejuvenation. And he wanted to show that this was not a very good idea uh, because of the side effects that it could have. And the side effects on the uh, physiology professor in the story uh, was that he quite literally ended up making a monkey of himself. And uh, the way that Holmes uh, actually came to this conclusion was by observing the behavior of the dog in the household. And the dog kept barking at his master. Uh, and of course, he had been uh, uh, on very, very friendly terms with, with, uh, with the physiology professor until he started behaving like a monkey, to which the dog took great objection and started barking at him uh, continuously. And this, of course, thought uh, was very strange by Holmes, and uh, eventually he figured it uh, all out. So that story for now is in celebration of Sherlock Holmes's 170th birthday. And uh, of course, he's retired. And as uh, many of you know, he is now raising bees on the South Downs in England and uh, no longer answers any mail that is uh, directed to him. Let me repeat the questions that I asked. Why does the kereru fall out of trees is one, and the seeds in the pods that grow on the golden chain tree are toxic and in sufficient doses can even cause death. Why would someone purposefully swallow a capsule that contains the toxin extracted from the seeds? These capsules are commercially available. Tell me why. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. All right, let's uh, hit the lines. And uh, who should be our first caller? I don't need to tell you. Of course, it's Kenny. Hi, Kenny. Hey, Gatelon. How you doing? All right. Tell, tell me, you get on the line even before the show starts? I do, yeah. I hear the show, then I call, okay. I call, I call the, uh, <laughs> the number, yeah. All right, so so you got an answer for me? Yes, uh, well, why do camillary fall from trees? Because it, it's a low temperature. Uh, they, don't, they, 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 they don't stick to, uh, to these trees. They got spotted, you know, it's cold, you know? Who? Who, who? The camillary. Who, who, who are you talking? The what? Huh? No, I'm saying the camillary what trees. Is, it, 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 what huh? do you think is the question that I, what do you think is the question that I asked? You ask why Camilleru falls from trees, right? Because uh, it, 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 it don't stick on the trees. It's low temperature, right? But what is a Kereru? It's the, it's the animal. What sort of animal? Uh, some sort of uh, a, a lizard or something? No. No. Okay. So we'll, we'll keep this question. Uh, maybe someone else can get the correct answer of why a kereru falls out of a tree. Why a kereru, K-E-R-E-R-U, falls out of a tree. Okay. So we'll keep that one going. <clears throat> but in the meantime, 
Everyone has heard of Listerine, right? It's a classic mouthwash, a plaque fighter, and one of the first dandruff treatments ever used. That's right, dandruff treatments. The active ingredient in this product is the disinfectant alcohol. Listerine is appropriately named after the brilliant British surgeon Joseph Lister, widely regarded as the father of uh, antisepsis. And therein lies the story. In the late 1800s, Lister sought an explanation for why fractures which broke through the skin usually would become infected, whereas those that did not pierce the skin healed nicely. The prevailing opinion at the time was that the exposed tissues were affected by oxygen in the air. It would break down the molecules of organic material in a wound, turning them to pus. In an attempt to exclude the practice was to dress the wound with tight bandages. Doctors even resorted to collodion, a solution of gun cotton in ether and alcohol, which formed a film as the solvents evaporated. Actually, these tight bandages encouraged bacterial growth and resulted in a virtually indescribable stench in the wards. In fact, many doctors believed that the stench caused the infections and was directly responsible for the roughly 50% death rate after surgery. Yet, incongruously, nobody tried to solve the problem by eliminating the smell. The sole voice of light in the darkness belonged to Florence Nightingale, the legendary lady with the lamp who espoused the doctrine of soap, warm water, and sunshine, but she was largely ignored. Then came a breakthrough. A professor of chemistry, Thomas Anderson, introduced Lister to the ideas of Louis Pasteur, who by now had shown that rotting and fermentation could occur even without oxygen, as long as microorganisms were present. Furthermore, the microorganisms could be killed by heat. This really struck Lister, who had never believed in the oxygen theory anyway. Indeed, he had fantasized about some sort of invisible dust settling into wounds. Immediately, Lister designed an experiment. He took some fresh urine, heated it, and sealed half of it in a glass tube, leaving the other half exposed to the air. When he smelled the samples in the morning, the one that had been exposed to the air reeked while the sealed sample was odorless. Evidently, microorganisms from the air had infected the open sample. Could these be the germs that could be killed with chemicals, he wondered. He thought of carbolic acid or phenol because he knew that it had been used to cleanse foul-smelling sewers. He also knew that when the treated sewage was used as fertilizer, the cows grazing on the pastures did not become infested with parasites as had been the case before. Perhaps the stuff that destroyed the smell and the parasites could also kill pastures' microorganisms. Lister got some carbolic acids from Anderson and tried it on a boy who had been run over by a cart and had an exposed fracture of the tibia. He recovered with no complications. Soon, Lister was washing his instruments with carbolic acid, 
also developed a sprayer which could fill the operating room with a mist of disinfectant. Results were immediate. Mortality from amputations dropped from 50 to 15%. Nevertheless, Lister had to deal with a great deal of skepticism because the germs, or little beasts, as some scornfully called them, were not observable. But in 1867, the prestigious British journal The Lancet accepted Lister's article on the prevention of infections and the era of antisepsis was underway. Today, of course, uh, one expects hand-washing by doctors, by nurses, obviously, and the use of all kinds of disinfectants in hospitals, because, of course, now we know a great deal about uh, microbes and the uh, risk that they pose. <clears throat> I guess this time I may really have uh, that... Uh, maybe defy Googling, uh, because I don't have any answers texted in yet, not even from our usual wise men who can answer everything. So once more, let me repeat the question. Why does the Kereru fall out of trees? One question, and the second one, the seeds in the pods that grow on the golden chain tree are toxic, and in sufficient doses can even cause death. Why would someone purposefully swallow a capsule that contains the toxin extracted from the seeds? And the, the toxin, of course, is not there in sufficient amounts to, to cause harm. So this is not a, a question of, of suicides. A very disturbing story uh, came out this week about a midwife in New York who had administered about 12,500 bogus homeopathic pellets to roughly 1,500 children. Now, of course, the, this is an interesting expression here, uh, bogus uh, uh, homeopathic pellets, uh, because, of course, all homeopathic pellets are, are bogus. So, so there's no need to use the word bogus. But anyway, she administered these to uh, children who had come to her uh, to be vaccinated. But instead, uh, Jeanette Breen, she was a licensed midwife, and she began providing these oral homeopathic uh, tablets to children, saying that these would offer real immunity. And she distracted them, at least distracted the parents, from um, having their children be jabbed with the usual vaccination. Now, incredibly, uh, she was able to convince these parents that instead of using um, the regular vaccine, the kids should be given these uh, immunity pellets based on um, what she called homeoprophylaxis. And uh, she claimed to protect children against deadly infectious diseases, the same diseases that, that were covered by regular vaccines, including diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, that's whooping cough, of course, hepatitis B, measles, mumps, rubella, polio, chickenpox, meningococcal disease, and pneumococcal disease. Now, I hope I don't have to tell my listeners, because you've been listening to me long enough, that there's no way that any kind of homeopathic preparation can prevent these diseases. That is, this is pure nonsense. And um, 
she was uh, called out by federal authorities and um, she uh, was made to pay a fine of $300,000 of which apparently she pays 150,000 and the state suspended the rest on condition that she stay in compliance with the state's orders, which was to never use these uh, homeopathic uh, pills uh, instead of any sort of uh, vaccination. I think that this is, um, uh, <laughs> well, she, she got away really easy uh, in that. Uh, what she did was to prevent about 300 children from getting the vaccine that they should have gotten. 300 children who were given this nonsensical uh, protection, which would not have offered, of course, any kind of protection against the diseases that I mentioned. And um, now they're tracking down these 300 children to see how they may have been uh, affected and they have been excluded from going to school until their parents have provided proof that uh, they have vaccinated them properly. But uh, just subjecting this woman who had um, carried out this, this crime of substituting an inactive substance for a vaccine, uh, to just have her pay a fine, I think is unconscionable. Uh, she should have been put into prison uh, because uh, of course she put these children at risk and we'll see what happens when the authorities track down to see how many of these children came down with some sort of disease that could have been uh, prevented by, uh, by vaccination. Her place is in jail. Uh, you're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. Uh, we'll see what's going on out there and be right back. You know, one thing I've learned over the 43 years of doing this show is that we have uh, generally uh, very, very smart listeners who can dig up answers to questions and who make smart comments, etc. But there are also a few uh, who are uh, sort of mentally addled uh, science deniers. And one of them just texted me, you know, when I made the comment about this uh, this nurse who uh, substituted inactive sugar pills for vaccines. And uh, this uh, correspondent says, so you mean she saved them from getting the unproven vax that killed 17 million people? Well, I know that with the intelligence of my audience here, I don't have to take this up any further. I don't, don't have to, to respond to such nonsense. Uh, we know, of course, that uh, the vaccines work. They work very well. Of course, they don't prevent all transmission of disease, but they keep people out of the, uh, the ICU. And the development of these vaccines has, has been uh, uh, absolutely fabulous in terms of, uh, of science. Okay, uh, let's go to Arthur, who I think is on the line with a question. Arthur. Uh, electrolysis, they separate uh, hydrogen and oxygen in water, right? Correct. And now, how come they don't use oxygen? It's very explosive. You know, can't they use that as a propellant? Uh, oxygen itself is not explosive, and oxygen does not burn. Oxygen just supports combustion. 
and it is, of course, used in, in rocketry. Liquid oxygen uh, is uh, used to power many rockets where it oxidizes the fuel. The fuel very often is liquid hydrogen, like it was you know, on, in, in the uh, main fuel tank of the space shuttle, like it was in the Saturn V that went to the moon. So uh, certainly, uh, liquid hydrogen is used as a fuel and oxygen is used as the oxidizing agent. But oxygen by itself does not explode and does not burn. You can take a container and fill it with oxygen and throw a map match into it, and the match will do nothing. So I'm not sure what question you're asking. The, uh, tell me, uh, CO2, does that prevent uh, a, a spoiling of food, the CO2 gas? If you immerse food it in can. CO2 gas? Yes. Uh, in, in, in fact, uh, apples very often are, are stored in what is called cold storage, where the air has been replaced by carbon dioxide because it, it, it does uh, prevent spoilage, right? But there's nothing that you can do at home to make use of that fact. Me, Doc, if you okay. fill one... Hello? Yeah. If you yeah, fill one ahead. of these uh, these uh, fridges, you know, that open at the top, if you fill that with CO2 gas and put your food in there, would it stay longer? Well, it, it will probably stay longer because of the cold temperature. But not because of the uh, not because of any chemical action of the carbon dioxide. Question: A burn victim. The, does what causes the pain? The oxygen against the burn, against the uh, burnt uh, part of your body, the skin. Isn't it no, the oxygen it's, it's, that it's, causes the pain? No, it's it's not. It's the damage to the nerves that causes the pain. It's not, not oxygen reacting with the tissues. It's damage to the nerves. Okay. All right. Let me go to Fernando, who also has a question. Fernando. Yes. Thank you for taking my question. Uh, two questions. Uh, one is, why is uh, sulfides uh, listed on wine bottles uh, and saying uh, contain sulfides? What's the issue with sulfite? Sulfite, yeah, sulfite is used as a preservative in in wine, and um, by law, it has to be listed as an additive when it is present, because there are some people who have an adverse reaction to sulfites. It's not exactly an allergy, but it, it is an adverse reaction, and it's especially um, a curse for people who suffer from respiratory ailments like asthma because it will make the asthma worse. But for the vast majority of the population, uh, sulfites uh, do not have any kind of, uh, of an effect. But uh, it, it prevents the, the wine from becoming discolored. Okay. And second question, milk. Um, I, I drink 1% fat milk, and it shows on the contents that it contains 0.1% trans fat. And I don't understand that because trans fat, I thought, was a manufactured fat, while milk is a natural no, not ne No, not necessarily. Uh, uh, trans fats occur in nature as well. They occur in meat. They occur in dairy products. I mean, the biggest concern, of course, is, is when they are produced as a, a side product in the hydrogenation process, which is, you know, which is used commercially. But uh, trans fats also do occur in nature. Uh, in very, very small amounts. But by law, whenever there's any trans fat in, in a food, 
no matter where it comes from, it is listed on the label. But the amount of trans fat that would be in the dairy product that you're talking about is absolutely inconsequential. Okay, so it's negligible. Okay. Very good. Negligible. Thank you for your time. Thank yeah. you. Okay. And I think Jerry maybe has an answer to one of my questions. Jerry. I think I have both, Dr. Joe, but to, to that the comment from before, unfortunately, there's no vaccine for stupidity, is there? <clears throat> no, there isn't. I, w okay. I wish there was, but yeah, no, me too. <laughs> there, there isn't. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, let's questions. have your answer. Yeah. So uh, the caribou bird yeah. likes to uh, ga uh, gorge himself on fruit and then sunbathe. And when he sunbathes, it ferments the fruits, uh, turns it into alcohol, and he just falls off the tree because he's drunk. Yeah, uh, it's actually called the New Zealand pigeon, the kiraru. Yeah. And, uh, uh, well, I, I think I have to make a little, little correction there. Okay. It eats fruit that is already fermented. It, it doesn't ferment in its body. But, but fruit that drops from trees or sometimes even the fruit that stays on a tree when it rots, it undergoes fermentation and it produces alcohol. And the bird, uh, I guess, likes to get buzzed. And sometimes it gets bust to the extent that it actually falls out of the tree. <laughs> now, what about the other question? Yeah, the golden chain. Well, I think people like to use yeah. that or, or think they can use it for vomiting and constipation. So I don't know why they'd want to do that, but uh, there's no evidence uh, to support that. No, no, no. I, I mean, I think that that is a side effect of this, but that's not why it is used. It, it, it actually is used for a real pharmaceutical purpose. And uh, as, as you said, uh, the the uh, gastrointestinal symptoms are a side effect, but that's not why people use it. There actually is a legitimate use uh, for this. It is sold in, in Canada as a commercial product. And the question is, for what? Okay, well, I'll keep okay, searching. We'll, okay, all right. Keep, keep searching because the answer is an interesting one. Okay. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. There's a clue. All right. So, uh, but we did get the Carreru uh, answered. Uh, so that uh, means that I have to give you another question. A chemical that occurs naturally in human urine and in the comfrey plant is often added to personal care products such as skin creams and lotions because it reduces irritation and helps to heal cracks in dry skin. Obviously, I want to know what this naturally occurring substance is. Found in human urine, found in the comfrey plant, added to personal care products such as skin creams and lotions because it reduces irritation and helps to heal cracks in dry skin. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be back. My uh, adult friend who thinks that the vaccine killed 17 million people uh, informs me that we should be getting the right information from InfoWars. And you know what InfoWars are. That's uh, the uh, quack website that is manned by Alex Jones. Uh, you know Alex Jones. I mean, he's the... the uh, I don't even know what you know. We can call him politely. Uh, he's the one who says that the Sandy Hook was was all a fake, and that you know the kids weren't really killed. I mean, uh, uh, I don't know if Alex Jones is an actor playing the role of Alex Jones, or if he really is the idiot that he seems to be. But in any case, 
that is not the place to go for good information. If you want good information, you can go for scientific studies, such as a very interesting twin study. You know, when it comes to the nature versus nurture debate, studies of twins, invaluable. Why? Uh, identical twins share 100% of their genes. Fraternal twins, only about 50%. So comparison of shared traits between identical twins and fraternal twins provides information about whether those traits are due to genetics. Uh, for example, identical twins always have the same eye color, whereas the trait is shared by only about 25% of fraternal twins. Uh, what does that mean? It means that the eye color is totally regulated by genetics. Uh, on the other hand, performance on IQ tests is not totally controlled by genetics. Uh, although there is a genetic component, as is evidenced by fraternal twins sharing IQ scores almost as much as uh, identical twins. Uh, you know what's interesting also uh, is a, a study that involved astronaut Scott Kelly and his earthbound former astronaut twin brother, Mark. Uh, and you may know the story uh, that Scott spent 340 days in the International Space Station. <laughs> it's a long time to spend up there, right? Uh, and he collected samples of his urine, his blood, and saliva. And then these were compared with those uh, taken from his brother, who was uh, earthbound. And the goal was to get clues about how the body stands up to the challenge of long space flights. And of course, uh, when we talk about going to Mars, these would be very long space flights. I mean, we're talking about, you know, roughly nine months each way. Uh, anyway, while there were differences, most of Scott's values returned to pre-flight levels soon after his return to Earth. So that in general, the study showed that the human body can adapt to a multitude of changes induced by spending an extended time in space. But uh, Scott did retain some differences in gene expression and carotid artery thickening, cognitive function. Role of diet as a factor in these could not be ruled out because the brothers, of course, had very different diets. Mark on the ground did not eat space food and he gained weight <laughs> while his orbiting brother uh, lost weight uh, eating, you know, the special uh, foods that are provided for the uh, uh, astronauts. Uh, however, earthly studies of identical twins can assess the effects of different diets. And there was this really neat study done uh, by Stanford University researchers who enlisted 22 pairs of identical twins. And one in each pair followed a vegan diet and the other an omnivore diet that is basically eating everything. But both diets had lots of fruits and vegetables and whole grains and avoided sugar and refined starches. So even the... the uh, the subjects in the control diet, that is not the vegan diet, were eating a pretty healthy diet. For the first four weeks, the meals were supplied by the study, so they had no decision to make. And for the last four, participants were instructed on how to prepare them, either the omnivore or the, the vegan. And the results were interesting. After eight weeks, which is a very short time in terms of scientific studies, there were significant differences in uh, low-density lipoprotein cholesterol, that's the so-called bad cholesterol, as well as in fasting insulin uh, levels and also in terms of body weight. And uh, this study eliminates genetics, of course, because these were identical twins. And uh, it did demonstrate that switching to a vegan diet can produce significant results in terms of health benefits in as little as two months, and that, that is surprising. 
so you know there is now further support for recommending uh, you know to to try to gravitate towards a, a more of a plant-based diet and uh, of course that is also backed by findings in uh, populations where you know longevity seems to be uh, very impressive and this is something that i've told you about before uh, and urge you to watch on netflix the the show about um, the blue zones where they uh, investigate sardinia in, in in italy okinawa and japan the greek island of icaria uh, seven-day adventists and and uh, uh, an area in costa rica where there seem to be a, a lot of people who live a very long time and they've looked at it and they see that they eat mostly plant foods and, and very little meat. Uh, but of course, their social situation is also very different. Uh, they don't put their uh, elder people in, in uh, homes. They keep them at home. They, they have lots of communal meals. Uh, so it's a very different uh, kind of lifestyle than what we have here. But it is certainly a program that is uh, worth watching. Um, the uh, the answer finally does come from uh, James. Uh, I mean, obviously, James knows everything. And uh, it was about the seeds or the pods that grow on the golden chain tree, which are toxic. And as I said, insufficient doses can cause death. And the question was, why would someone take a capsule made from these? <clears throat> well, the answer is they are attempting to give up smoking. Cytosine, a toxic compound, fits into nicotine receptors and reduces the craving for nicotine. And uh, uh, it was first developed for this use, that, that is the uh, cystocene, uh, in Bulgaria. This goes back to 1964 and is used predominantly today in the former Soviet countries. But it is available in Canada. Uh, with the curious name of Scriv, C-R-V-V. Uh, I guess it's some sort of shorthand for Crave. Anyway, it's licensed as a natural health product by Health Canada, and each capsule contains about one and a half milligrams of cytosine. And interesting enough, uh, the derivatives of this compound are also being researched as a treatment for cancer. And uh, the, the reason that I asked this question, because... Um, uh, I, I've become addicted to a television series, Lewis, which is on, on BritBox. It's about a British detective. And uh, the research about cytosine was featured on one of the episodes of, of uh, Lewis. And um, it's, it was a really neat episode. Anyway, the molecular structure of this compound has similarity to that of nicotine. And so, therefore, it has similar pharmacological uh, effects. And uh, in this particular episode, they uh, talked about the researcher who was doing some work and trying to find uh, a cure for cancer for his, his wife, but it did involve some criminal activity. Anyway, interesting. So uh, I, I would urge you to watch Lewis. It is indeed addictive, but it's a good kind of addiction. We have run smack out of time. But we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.